Here at Lady Farmer, we talk about so many different aspects of slow and sustainable living, a subject matter that can at times feel confusing, overwhelming, even misleading. And that's why a few years ago, we set out to write a book that might be a guide for those seeking a life of beauty, simplicity, and sustainability. We're thrilled to be able to offer you our own small guide for cultivating slow living, sustainable simplicity close to home available in our online marketplace. In the book, we've woven an easy-to-digest narrative of stories, recipes, tips, resources, ideas, and reflection. This collection of essays and resources will guide you to think about your own relationship to the planet, what you eat, what you wear, and how you live a sustainable lifestyle. It also contains a 21-day slow-living challenge of daily thought exercises to lead you in the process. For you Good Dirt listeners, we are offering free shipping of this wonderful little book with the code THEGOODDIRT in our online marketplace. So use the code THEGOODDIRT, T-H-E-G-O-O-D-D-I-R-T at checkout when you go to purchase your copy of The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living in our online marketplace for free shipping. That's The Good Dirt at The Lady Farmer online marketplace for free shipping on The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living. We hope you enjoy it. Thanks, everybody. Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. Bees are extremely important to produce the food we eat. One third of everything you eat is pollinated by a honeybee. But when we lose pollination where we can produce 30% more food, then that makes a big difference on products all the way around. You're listening to The Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now, the farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Welcome, everyone. When you're hearing this, it will be December 1st. So now it's really time for winter celebrations. If any of you heard my bonus episode from November, I offered you a little bit of a challenge, and that was to wait until December to really jump wholeheartedly into your decorating and your planning and your gift buying and all of those things. And I realized that a lot of people, they don't want to wait that long. They want to jump right in after Thanksgiving or even before Thanksgiving. I've been seeing a lot of that around on Instagram and so forth, people going ahead and decorating like early in November. But anyway, that's okay. Everybody needs to just be who you are. However, my suggestion was that we let November be November and let fall play itself out. And since Thanksgiving was a little early this year and we had a whole week before the beginning of December, just to try to use that period as a little bit of time to slow down and take a break from all of it. And then December 1st, today, you're ready to really celebrate the season. So However you've done it this year, whether you've waited or not, whatever, here we are, the month of winter celebrations. And so we wish all of you joy and beauty and lots of fun as we enter into this last month of the year and a full month of holiday celebrations. Yay. We hope, of course, that everyone is able to slow down as much as they can and really slow down with the earth and the way that nature is slowing down. A lot of times we tend to ramp things up around this time. So if you're listening to this, take it as your reminder that it's okay to slow down. That's what the earth wants you to do. That's what we're designed to do as 
also part of the earth. We are part of the earth. So also a note on, you know, I'm about to talk to you about the Good Dirt Pledge Drive, which is, in case this is your first time here, it is what will hopefully be an annual fundraising effort to rally our listeners behind what we're doing here at The Good Dirt. So everything that goes into this show takes a lot of work from a lot of really amazing, talented people. And we love to pay those people. (laughs) We have to pay those people. And we just want to keep the lights on and the show going. And we want to keep doing this work and providing you with this incredible weekly interview show. And then some, we're loving adding in more and more offerings where we can. So to participate in the pledge drive, all you have to do is click at the link in our show notes. All of the information is on the Lady Farmer website under podcast, Good Dirt Pledge Drive. And you basically choose a tier of monthly to pledge a monthly amount. And it's a recurring monthly pledge. And for each tier is associated certain rewards. Those rewards won't mar- won't ship until spring, late March, early April, 2024. You can read all about it on the Pledge Drive website, but your online benefits start immediately. So it is sort of associated with our online membership, but the slight difference here is that it is a specific pledge to the podcast with the perk being you have access to all of that if you would like it. If you don't think that it's something you would partake in, that's totally okay. You're still supporting the podcast and the work that we're doing here. And we really appreciate it. We're really really excited about this opportunity to get our listeners involved and to really become a true listener supported podcast. That's such a fun goal of ours. We also, as you might know, if you listen to this podcast, we do work with brands from time to time. We are extremely picky with who we work with and we love doing that. It's a really collaborative, fun process. We love bringing you brands and companies that are truly digging up good dirt as we see it, but we can't rely fully on that at this time. So we are looking to our lovely listeners to help us keep the show going for as long as we can. So enough about that. And getting into this week's episode, it's a really fun one. Mom, would you like to introduce our guest? Yes. Today we have Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer. He is a beekeeper from Cheyenne, Wyoming, who teaches the art of beekeeping to kids around the world. He's also maker of the famous King's Mead. He'll tell you about that in the interview. There are so many misunderstandings about bees and beekeeping, things we've only come to understand better in recent years. For instance, honeybees are not native to the U.S. They're imported. And beekeeping isn't just about harvesting honey. Bees are used in agriculture to pollinate crops and increase yields so that we can have enough food to feed all of the people. So Michael sheds light on all of these things, and he explains beekeeping from a very unique perspective. You'll enjoy this. He's not just a beekeeper, he says. He is a bee activist. He's teaching the youth of the world that in terms of being green, there's nothing greener than a beekeeper. So sit back, listen, enjoy. Here we are with Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer. So my name is Michael Jordan, and I'm a small-scale commercial beekeeper, and I live in the southeast section of Wyoming and Cheyenne, and I am responsible for 10 apiaries managing, managing 60 hives at each apiary, and I got into beekeeping in 1999 after I got into a car crash. I was going through documents. One of the things for my rehabilitation for the traumatic brain injury was to read a lot to make the synapse in your brain work. And so I was going through some old history stuff of our family and found out that we were beekeepers in Ireland in 908 AD, and we made honey wine. And I made my first batch of honey wine actually with family members in 1996. So it was just something that I didn't even know that our family had done. And then when we came to America, we became cattle people and then evolution and how things go. There's no need for the Pony Express and stuff like that anymore. And my family grew and I became a beekeeper just by reading a book that our family had and kind of some documents that I was going through as I was just trying to read for a traumatic brain injury. 
Wow. What a story. That's awesome. Yeah. So that's your aha moment then, huh? When you stumbled across the fact that you come from a long line of mead. That's what you call the honey wine? Correct. M-E-A-D. Mead. Yeah. From a long ancestral line of making honey wine. And I ended up taking that and I enhanced it and I won a lot of competitions. I won a local home brewers competition. They said I should enter the county fair. I won the county fair. I entered the state fair and a state competition, and I won both of those. And then I won a competition that was like for mead makers all over, and I won a cup for that. And then a friend of mine says, well, let's just see how good you are. He says, why don't you enter one of your meads for the World Cup, which is called the Mazer Cup. And I won first place as a Mazer Cup for experimental with an experimental meet the competition. That was over a long series of times of, of doing it, but that's just how I got my mead making. But in 1999, I read the book about how we were beekeepers. Since I was getting out of what I was doing from the head injury and stuff, I invested my money in, in beekeeping. And in 2001, I bought a portion of an extremely large beekeeping company at the time was called Rainbow Honey and Pollination. And I bought 2000 beehives from them and became a pollinator. And I started taking some classes and reading books. And I followed a couple mentors that were locally here in Wyoming. One of them actually happens to still be beekeeping today and is the, one of the largest beekeepers in Wyoming. And they manage 5,000 to 10,000. So I learned commercial beekeeping and I was doing okay. I would lose some days and win some days, depending on how pollination was going. And we were having the problem of colony collapse disorder just happening at the time. And it was just a an interesting phase for me. I had an opportunity. We had Katrina go through. After Katrina went through, and it was me and my dad and a couple of relatives that were managing the bees, we were actually kind of breaking apart and trying to kind of like find our niches in this industry. When we did that, we ended up donating around 1,100 beehives to Katrina victims that were beekeepers in Louisiana Delta. Out of the 2,000 hives, we, we kind of like donated 1,000. And it helped us split us all up, and it helped Katrina victims, and it just helped us all. That was around about 2006, 2007. In that time period, I kind of regrouped and my family, my dad and I, we decided to become a small commercial industry. We decided to manage 60 hive apiaries. An apiary is a facility where you house bees. And if you have 60 hives and colonies at this location, it's an average of where a one person can do that inspection in a day. And we've developed a program that we could manage anywhere from seven to 12 apiaries that had 60 beehives on them. And we basically produce honey. So we produce so much honey a year to fulfill a contract for a granola company. And we sell our honey at a, not like a super premium price, but more than what they do on what we call market value because of our beekeeping skill and practice and what the type of honey that we produce. And the granola company didn't want to get honey from like a co-op, which is what like Subi honey is. That's where hundreds of beekeepers ship their honey to a place and they blend all the honey together. And then it comes out in packets at KFC for biscuits. That's basically the, that on that large scale. They wanted one source so that way their granola was the same every time. So they buy anywhere from around 5,000 to 7,000 pounds of honey from us a year to produce granola. Uh, always granola is a general product, and they produce stuff for like Costco or other places like that. So on, on a honey scale level, I don't compete with people at the farmer's market. I found a production line for mine where I can sell my honey at not like $2 a pound, but you know around 4 to $5 a pound. But it's cheaper than what I'd have to sell it to make my money at the farmer's market which would be anywhere from 12 to $16. Yeah, so I got 50 pounds of honey out of my little three beehives this year. So I'm comparing that to your large commercial amount and wondering 
what would you say is the some of the biggest difference between backyard beekeeping and commercial beekeeping the way you do it? And how do you consider yourself different as a beekeeper on a commercial level in terms of like in terms of sustainability? So I have my master's degree in beekeeping from a correspondence course that I took from 2003 to 2004. That was a correspondence course to learn beekeeping from Uganda. So I got a master's in beekeeping through the Department of Air Interior of Uganda. And basically there, it's almost like commercial beekeeping. It's about making a lot of bees. So what makes me different than most commercial beekeepers is I'm not looking to always expand and grow. My job is to maintain an apiary or several apiaries. They're all identical. They're all the same. They all produce roughly the same amount of product. And there's the same amount of hives at this location that there is at every location that I have. So when I educate somebody in the in, in our system of beekeeping, they can go to any one of our apiaries. So you said an apiary, that's different from backyard beekeeping in that it's like a certain number of hives. No, an apiary is any location that contains a colony of bees. So even your backyard organization or operation is an apiary. That's your apiary. An apiary is the location that houses the hives. The hives are what houses the colony. The colony is the reputation of the bees. So if you have two or three beehives and you have them in your backyard, that's where your apiary location is. And your operation is a backyard beekeeper where you operate one to five beehives. A hobby beekeeper operates 10 to 100 hives. A commercial beekeeper operates anywhere from that 100 to 1,000 marker because they're looking for an income from their hobby beekeeping. You have an industrial beekeeper and they manage anywhere from 1,000 to 10,000. And the largest beekeeper in America right now manages 35,000 beehives in Southern California. And those are like the four different types of beekeeping operations. Most people that are backyard beekeepers do not do more than three to five hives. It has to do mostly about space and not necessarily education. They feel that the only being in a small area, they can only have so many beehives that I've seen operations in New York City done by a guy named Andrew Cotier, and he has seven or eight beehives on the roof of a hotel downtown New York. I know a guy that operates in Pennsylvania on his seventh-story balcony. It's like a little hibachi grill, and it's full of bees. And it's just about a managerial skill. So an apiary, I just run my apiary for a specific reason, and for that reason, I employ things that you won't. And things that I employ that you won't is feed. A lot of backyard beekeepers do not feed as much as I do. And I don't think they understand what feed's for. If you're producing around 60 pounds of honey from three beehives, you're looking at 30, 30 pounds per hive, which is basically one medium box that is minus about two frames. So you're running about one medium box per beehive. And that has about seven frames that were full, which gave you approximately 50 to 60 pounds of honey. Each medium box produces anywhere from 40 to 55 pounds of honey. So in my operation, each one of my hives and colony produces 80 pounds to 100 pounds of honey. So if I have an operation that has 60 hives and they produce 40 pounds of honey to 50 pounds, I'm looking at 3,000 pounds per apiary. I force my bees to make honey by starving them and then rewarding. As a backyard beekeeper, what kind of bee frames are you using? My backyard bees are handled by a beekeeper that comes in and does it. I just basically let him use the land. So I don't really know much about how it's done at all. That's why this is so interesting to me. Okay, so you're not the keeper of the bees. You're a facilitator for hives and colonies, a resting area or, a, or what they call a honey producing area. Yes, he has several 
hive set up all over the area. And so he gets a, you know, a diversity of plants and floral and pollinators and you know, kind of different flavors or whatever you call it. And sometimes he mixes them up or sometimes, you know, like this year that he had enough from our hives alone so that we got exclusively our honey, which was, which was really, really nice. But um, anyway, Emma, do you want to ask that next question? Yeah, sure. In general, can you tell us a little bit about the importance of bees and the dangers that they're facing and how current practices in beekeeping might be helping or not helping? Many people assume that beekeeping in itself is a very earth-friendly and sustainable practice, but can you describe for us how that might not necessarily be true all of the time? Bees are extremely important to produce the food we eat. One third of everything you eat is pollinated by a honeybee. So that's like taking a pie, cutting one third out of it, and every year you cut one third out until there's no pie, which usually takes five years. That means like if you go to the grocery store and you buy a pie, you can buy one at 7 to $13. Pretty easy commodity to get to. But when we lose pollination where we can produce 30% more food, by pollination we have 30% more food. So if we don't do that, pie comes from 7 to $13, they're around 27 to $37. And that makes a big difference on products all the way around. Even the Happy Meal that kids eat. Without pollination, you don't have clover because clover is needed by pollination. Even alfalfa is pollinated by a leaf cutter bee that even other beekeepers own to just to get paid to pollinate that plant to make more alfalfa to feed cattle. And people are like, that's crazy. And you're like, yeah, but without cattle, you don't get happy meals, right? So it's a, it's a complete cycle that we as commercial uh, or I'm a small scale, so I no longer move my bees to pollinate. A larger commercial, not industrial, well, industrials are the most of them, but industrials are big honey producers or large pollinating contractors. So like the almond fields in California, they produce 80% of the almonds of the world. I'm not saying they don't produce almonds anywhere else in the world, but when we're talking demographically and where we ship almonds from, 80% of the almonds in the world are grown in one location. And it's in that belt between Stockton, California, and Bakersfield around King City. And in February, we move almost 2 million beehives from Australia, Canada, America, all to this one little location in February to pollinate almonds. Because that's where 80% of the almonds grow. And that's called the cycle of earth. From that location, the bees are then taken to different locations to pollinate the food you eat. Remember, because when it pollinates, it makes 30% more food. So if you're vegan and you like soy products, soybeans have to be pollinated to make that food source by a commercial beekeeper that you hate. If you're vegan, you can't eat soy because it's pollinated by something you hate. So if you're truly that whole functional thing, all the way around where you're like, nothing with a face. Are we going full circle or are we being logical? So on the logical end, I'll go back to how important beekeeping is. We pollinate the food. Yes, we do practices in farming that people do not always like. And as a beekeeper, I don't like it all the time either because we're using pesticides, fungal sides. We're using anything to combat weeds. And weeds are just another, another life form that if we're using correctly, you could probably eat. You know, it's just people don't like eating thistle. You know, it's, it's hard to harvest. So when it comes to producing food, we migrate these bees to locations to produce watermelons, cucumbers, blackberries, soy, and even grain products. And so in America, we have an abundance of food. We have so much food that the kids in the cafeterias of the school district can throw it away. And that has to do with because of how we produce food. Like I said, I'll move my bees to a blueberry field, which is a monocrop. So it's only doing blueberries. Is it great for my bees? No, just like me, if I continue eating a hamburger every single day for a month, I'm sure I'm not going to be feeling well. If I take a bee to the blueberry fields and all they get is blueberry nectar, I'm sure they're not feeling very well. So this is the commercial practice that people don't like to hear. But once you kind of describe it, how I'm describing it, you're going, wow, 
I'm really glad that there's some beekeepers that are really beneficial and are really trying to do a good job to keep their bees. Because how we produce food, how I just told you, so everybody can go to the grocery store and have a variety of food and canned vegetables and all this stuff. There's a lot of things we do. We use pesticides to kill a lot of bugs. We use a lot of fertilizers to make plants grow. And my bees don't like it. So we have to work with industries so that when they spray, my bees aren't there. And when they plant stuff, my bees are right there to pollinate them. So we're working with practices so my bees don't get exposed to a lot of things. And I can still try to produce the food that you want on the monocropping. That's how we produce our food. Here's something that a backyard beekeeper does not understand is that in order for that bee to make that natural comb that everybody loves and likes, it takes eight pounds of sugar to make five cubic inches of comb. So if you want to be a top barkeeper and you want that nice natural comb, make sure you have around 90 to 125 pounds of sugar that you can feed those bees so they can make that comb. Because 60 beehives takes one football field of floral year round. That means every single day that football field has to bloom for 365 days to feed a colony of 60 hives, which is impossible. Here in Wyoming, it gets snow November, December, February. How am I going to have that much floral to feed those bees? So just like in any agricultural business, from sheep to cattle, you know, they take hay out to the cattle and feed them because why they're nice to them, right? It's just like when you get a kitty cat, you bring it home. It just doesn't eat mice and birds. You feed it and give it a litter box. When you have bees of any type, when you have days of darth, which means like winter or no floral, you feed them because you're nice to them. A lot of people like you feed your bees, you feed them sugar and you yeah, because I like them. I don't want them to starve. <laughs> Sorry that you don't understand that concept that even you need to eat food. Because I'm sure if you weigh as much as I do, you could probably make it all winter without eating. Well, I mean, bears do it, right? So a human can do it, right? We're all the same mammalia. So, I mean, you have to be logical on the whole thing. So from beekeeping, it's necessary to feed us. One third of everything we eat comes from it. It makes more plants that produce oxygen and food for other resources like bugs that eat the grass, that fly over the ponds, that feed the fish. And there's just not honeybees. There are beekeepers that are commercial beekeepers that have leaf cutter bees that pollinate the alfalfa fields. You have people that have bumblebees that move them directly into greenhouses because those little fat guys can only go so far and a greenhouse is just perfect for them. So you have mason bees, which people come out and they're called solitary bees. When people put out, they got their natural beehive. It's got the little bamboo tubes and all the stuff in it. There's all kinds of beekeeping. I think the one thing that sets me different from all the other beekeepers is I see the holistic aspect of it. I went from 2,000 beehives. Could I manage them with a crew of people and stuff? I could. It's not as fun as when I can go to 60 beehives. And I know the system, all the guys that work with me know the system. If we take a lot of people in, it just goes faster on the weekend. And we could come in on a Monday and a Tuesday and do three apiaries in two days. And I think that's what makes me different is I, I don't want thousands of beehives because I think one beekeeper with 10,000 beehives is not as strong as 10,000 beekeepers with about four or five hives. And that makes that would make diversity. And I think that's what we're seeing now. As we'll go one more step is because of Conley collapse disorder, the big wave of people wanting to be backyard beekeepers and you have more people wanting them. And when more people wanting them, you have to supply them. So the one thing that makes uh, small scale commercial beekeepers different than a backyard beekeeper is I don't buy bees anymore. Most backyard beekeepers that have three or four highs, they have losses. And if you lose, if you got three highs and you lose two, you only got one. As a backyard beekeeper, really think about how are you going to breed your queens? People are like, why do I need to do that, right? Because I don't want them to swarm. Because when the bees swarm in your community, they get in somebody's house and wall. They get in somebody's soffit. They, you, you, 
if, if you're not practicing good skills as a beekeeper and you're swarming, you're causing your community to have problems. Your neighbor's going to have bees all of a sudden on the eve of his house. And the next thing you know, he sees bees coming in out of his wall and he calls an exterminator. And the exterminator goes, oh, my God, this is going to be huge money. This is great, right? Because I'm going to come in. I'm going to charge him to kill the bees. And the bees die. Right? And then they're going to call me back because they're going to have ant problems. All that nectar and honey and stuff was left in the wall. And I'm going to have to come back and I'm going to exterminate ants. And then in about three more months, the mice come because they're bigger than the ants. And they can start chewing up the comb and getting all that product. Now you got mice and rant problems. Then you call me back, right? So then I kill the ants, rats, and the bees. And in about six more months, it's swarm season. And because you had a colony in there and they've got pre-made home, it's just like the bees goes, oh my gosh, look at this apartment we could move back into. And then you got bee problems again. Let me tell you about what it's like to drift to sleep on a 100% natural wool pillow sourced from regenerative farms wrapped in a lovingly handmade organic cotton pillowcase. Oh wait, I can't. I think it's just something you're going to have to try for yourself. Holy Lamb Organics is proud to carry on a centuries-old tradition of making beautiful textile products by hand. Combining heritage methods with pristine natural and organic materials and sustainable business practices, they bring a dedication to healthy living and the environment. Everything Holy Lamb does reflects their devotion to the planet and its inhabitants. From their supply chain to their manufacturing processes to their facilities management, nothing happens without considering the environmental impact. Most importantly, they're also dedicated to fair labor practices, secure working conditions, diversity, and inclusion. From the farm to the mill to their partner manufacturers, everyone shares the same high ideals of a safe, respectful workplace and environmentally conscious methods. Making good products enables them to do good work. Every time we order something from Holy Lamb Organics, we're proud to support a small town made in America company. You can find Holy Lamb Organics in the Lady Farmer Marketplace. For additional marketplace discounts, you can join the Almanac, our member-supported community platform. Find Holy Lamb Organics products including pillows, sheets, natural wool comforters, and more in the bedding section of the Lady Farmer Marketplace at www.ladyfarmer.com. A lot of people don't realize that honeybees are not native to North America. Can you tell us a little bit about that? We didn't know about pollination and moving the bees until the early 1800s. So if it's a good beekeeping course, they say, are bees for me? Are bees for me, right? Should I have them, right? And the first thing they ask you is, can you take a sting? Because if you can't get stung, you can't have them. So as you go through this process of learning if you can be a beekeeper, one of them is the history of beekeeping. And it goes back all the way to back where we talk about before Christ and they show Neanderthals doing honey hunts where they carved them in the cave walls. And then they have pictographs and uh, hieroglyphs of Egyptians and honey. And then we found honey in Tutankhamun's tomb that was still good thousands of years old and still good to eat. And, uh, it goes all the way to the Vikings. That's how I got our beehives in 908 AD through our history. Is the Vikings would travel around and take things from other colonies. And they took digging sugar makers. And they would colonize them to make mead. So every culture in the Eastern area would have something to do with the production. Even in China and Japan, they have their own histories of how far back they could date of their beekeepers. When I teach history, I teach you to learn it when the bees came in 1600s into Virginia. That's where the bees came to America was in the 1600s of Virginia. I want you to look from there. And then I want you to find out who the beekeepers were at that time in your state all the way to who's keeping bees right now in your state and the organizations that they have. And then from those organizations and stuff, you should find someone that's local who will mentor you. And that's all the history of it. Around the 1800s, we developed two guys. One was Langstroth and was A.E. Root. A.E. Root decided that if we made the foundation for the bees, the bees don't have to build the comb all different directions. So we'll just make a piece of wax that already has the cells the bees can draw off of it. And A.E. Root did that. And as he studied, he figured, 
Well, if I made the sales bigger, the bees that came out would be bigger. If you're bigger, you can haul more honey. And we found out like me, when you get as fat as me, you don't haul much more of anything than you did before, probably even less. So that's how we got problems as we started as beekeepers, changing them, making them different sizes and all kinds of different things. And you'll learn that as your history of beekeeping is that we moved them from a 4.9 millimeter to a 5.7 millimeter. And now we're trying to get the bees smaller again because we learned that if the bees are small, they don't get trachea mite because trachea mite is this big. If we make the bees small, the trachea is only this small. The bees can't get them anymore. So we're trying to go back to some old ways because of, of, of doing stuff like this. Like I said, this, this is all pre-made comb. I don't have to feed my bees tons of sugar to make comb. It's already there. So they just lay bees in it. They just fill it with honey. And when you have more holistic beekeepers, they like the wax production. They like all that natural stuff, but it's, it takes money to make wax. You have to feed the bees to make them make wax. So where did the bees first come from? I mean, how did they know where to import them from? They brought them over with the pilgrims. When we were doing the mass migration over this way in the 1600s, the bees were coming on the ships. And we knew how to do it because as the Vikings and the Persians did, Hundred years before, as they were moving the bees, they moved them on the ships. Bees are union workers. They only work when the sun's up because you only have so many of nocturnus nightshade variety of plants, right? That bloom at night. Most of them bloom during the day. So the bees are usually working from six to six in the morning. Sometimes you have some that clock in early, some clock in late, but they're mostly union workers. And when they all come back in, we just close the doors on the beehives, load the beehives on trucks, haul them to the next location. And then when we open the doors, they come out. They do an orientation flight to see where they're at. They see where the sun is. They see where the water is. Then they go hunt. And then we just make them hunt for the food products to, to pollinate. So before we started importing the bees in North America, it was just native bees here, right? Correct. So... What did food production look like in America before the bees came? Lots of hand pollination and small food product. Most of it was indigenous Native Americans, and they were migratory. Like in my area of Wyoming, we're meat production. We're not vegetable production. If you look all the way back to prehistoric times, we had dinosaurs that grazed here. That's why we have organic fuel. Organic fuel is coal and oil. That's organically made from compression. During that time period, all the way to now with buffalo that grazed here, we made meat production, protein. Bees in this area were very slim because you didn't have to have the pollination for plant life because we didn't have that type of plant life here. It was mostly grain and, and, and grass. So when you get down southern and into what we call the Texas Belt area from like Southern California, along the Louisiana, all the way to Florida, you had more indigenous bees, which we have some here, right? You have, you have cuckoo barrel bees, you have squash bees, you have bumblebees. And when you talk about bumblebees, there's like seven different varieties. You have digger bees. I mean, in, in the apis, there are 20 some thousand different varieties of apis. I think 4,000 were indigenous to the use of, to the colonies meaning from Canada down to South America. Out of honeybees, there's only like 6,000 variety of honeybees. And most of them are what we call uh, breeder-made. Like, Because right now here, even in the United States, you have people that have bred bees constantly in their location and made a bee just for their location. And you have a lot of universities and colleges that, that want to study bees. So they're artificially inseminating bees with different drone semen to get a specific bee. Like you have the Minnesota mite biters from the University of Minnesota. You have the ones that, that are called OHSs or something like that. They're a California breed from you, like UC Davis. In the honeybee world, there's a lot of varieties of people trying to breed like their own special for the area because people are like, I like to try to get local honeybees for my hive. And technically, all the bees came from one location out of Turkey, and we migrated them all across. I mean, the, the Mediterranean belt is where bees are at, because that's where the plants are, right? You don't have plants in Alaska. 
So yeah, in the America, there were bees. They were not the stinging sugar insects like what we brought. But the largest production of sugar that we knew was what we brought from the Mediterranean belt, which was the honeybees. So we brought them over for sugar production and didn't really realize how heavily the pollination was until later when we would move them to areas. Because back in the day, it was great to have a beehive on your on your homestead. So, and you know, when you're talking the 16s to 1800s and you had a beehive on there, it was because you're producing sugar for your household, pollinating your gardens. And everybody had them. Can you tell us a little bit more about mead making and your mead making? Do you still do that? And what was that like? Oh, I do it all the time. I produce the federal legal amount of meat a year. So usually around June to July, I have scheduled people to be hand fastened or broom jumpings. Those are the things that I perform. I don't do traditional weddings. I do Renaissance style weddings. And part of the wedding is that the friar will give the wedded couple mead. They'll pay me a donation for the mead and the wedding ceremony. So, you know, like for like $6,000, right? We'll roast a pig. We'll make 20 gallons of mead for the ceremony. We'll wed everybody. Everybody will get to eat and have mead at the ceremony. Basically, it's just what we do when I do that. I don't know, there's, there's some individuals that like to have private parties. Harrison Ford might want to have a whole bunch of people over and just want something exotic that you just can't have anywhere else. Right. There are those types that like to, I want it to taste like peaches, like a peach bellini, but can you make it lavender? My wife likes purple. So can you make it taste like peaches, but look great? You have people that want to do anything from blueberry lemonade to braggots, which are grains. My whole dream is that when my kids are finally all out of the house and stuff, that I'll spend my time and sell a couple of my apiaries and use that money to make a a wine hall meadery in Cheyenne, Wyoming. So yeah, I, I do a lot with mead and I, I teach, if you look up on YouTube, 52 meads in a year. I made a mead every Friday for a year. So we made 52 gallons in one year. We did one gallon batches, everything from how to make a chocolate mint to salted, salted caramel to piments, which are grapes. You can have uh, white grapes, red grapes, black grapes, I mean, you can do, I mean, when it comes, so here's the one fantastic thing. I went and learned permaculture. So I went and learned from a lady named Ingram. She teaches microbiology and soil. So I learned how to resoil my earth to make the best soil. And then I learned permaculture to grow the blessed plants. So that way I learned beekeeping so I could harvest the greatest honey from these plants so I could make the finest wines. And when I found this out, I found out that every single plant that produces nectar, that nectar is a honey. So every, there's, what people like, what's your favorite honey? I said, probably the one I've never tasted yet, right? Because carrots make honey. When they pollinate carrot plants, you're going to get carrot honey, right? You know, artichokes, avocados, everything to nuts, berries, right? To even exotic florals like oleander that make, you know, oleander was actually used as a weapon back in the Greek days, because it makes us a honey that physically makes you ill. will give you dysentery. They would harvest this honey and put it in barrels out in small encampments outside of town. So when like raiders would come, the first thing they would hit was a small encampment. They'd eat this honey and then they'd be sick for the next two or three days being obliviated by the tribes around them. The bees are so phenomenal. And when it comes to making honey wines, it's, it's from every honey, so you can make blueberry lemonade using lemon honey when the bees pollinated the lemon plants. Then you can also use blueberry honey, mix the two honeys together, and also add blueberry juice and lemons and make a, I mean, and make an all organic, all natural drink that's phenomenal to drink. They're phenomenal to drink. Oh, yum. Sounds so good. Do you have a name for your mead? Well, right now we call ourselves the underground meadery. Okay. Because basically we do kind of like everything underground. We're not, we don't have advertisement, right? But we do things based on donations and education that if you want to have a mead making class, and I, and I do it for all kinds of things. Like a gentleman will have, today we're going to show you how to plant corn, brought in a special guest. He's going to teach you how to make mead, right? And then we come in and we, we teach you how to make one gallon batches at home. So you can have the fun 
and enjoyment of making something that you can watch age. And people are like, oh, like brewing beer. Beer can be brewed in 30 days. I'm talking something that we work with and age and refine wine. And it ends up being anywhere from 17% to 28% alcohol, depending on the craft that you use. It could be super simple. You can throw water and honey together and add yeast, put a balloon on it, ferments, and you can make it. But mead making is only in depth of how, how deep you want to go down the rabbit hole on the types of honeys, the types of plants, anything you want. You mentioned that you did some study in permaculture, right? Yes. So can you talk about permaculture and beekeeping? Sure. So what I've learned about permaculture is that it's a fantastic way to grow things. How to look like if something grows in this location, that if the, the climate, altitude and everything, if it's the same here, I can grow that here. So like pawpaw plants that some people never hear of, you can find out that can grow in a lot of places. Like here in Wyoming, barefoot wine. California is looking in this area to start growing grapes. You're like grapes in the mountains where it snows. And they're like, got to remember grapes grow in a desert. That's the Sierra Desert up there. The grapes are going to do really good if we get the right variety that grow in the right area and the right climate, right? So that's what I learned from permaculture. I also learned from permaculture that to make things permanent, you have to do a lot of work. It takes a lot of work. To do permaculture, you have to do one of three things. One is refurbish and reuse. So on that end, if you don't have a lot of money, that is like one of your number one principles is to find anything that people are not using anymore to repurpose and reuse because to build sustainable energy culture costs a lot of money. To come in with equipment to bake swells and to build food forests, to do that hand and stuff takes time because, you know, there's no such thing as organic. There's organic practices. So like when it comes to organic and like permaculture and stuff, I think that's super great for the homesteader. I think it's super great for somebody that like a backyard gardener or something to use those. If you're not a refurbished, reused person, it will cost you a little bit of money. But in the long run, it's something that when you die, your kids are like, man, look at all these olive trees grandpa grew. We produce olives and, man, and there's apples and pears and look at all these berries and stuff. They do say old men plant trees that they never see the shade of. And that's permaculture. As soon as you get all functioning and running, it's going to take all your life and your time to get it there. But you have done something for the planet that is incredible. When it comes to beekeeping, you can do all kinds of preventative maintenance by using like rhubarb leaves that produce oleic acid to try to pe treat your bees with mites. If your bees do have mites, the reason they have mites is because as beekeepers, we don't have bees up in the air anymore. We have bees in a box on the ground. If the bees would be naturally forming in the air, 30 to 40 to 60 feet in the air, mites produce and fall to the ground. In order for them to reproduce, they have to jump back in the comb and lay in the comb. But from 30 to 60 feet, that's pretty hard to do. But I created the problem by putting the bees in a box, and now the mites can just jump up and down like this. So I have to treat them, and I have to use mite treatment. If it overruns with mites, then I have to use heavy chemical, because I love my bees. And since beekeepers create the problem, like we made the bees too big, so now they can get trachea mites. That was smart of us. We put them in a box, and now the mites and stuff can't fall to the ground. That's smart of us. The bees are now not in a location of the Mediterranean belt, so now I've got to feed them. I created all the problems the bees have, so my mindset, I try to do the best practices I can to help them because I created most of the problem. It's not like, you know, when people say, well, I'm going to keep my bees organically and all. I'm treatment free. And you're like, right on. So you're, the treatment you're using them is leaving the bees the hell alone and leaving them in the tree because that's treatment free. Because as soon as you put those bees in a box, you treated them different than nature would treat them. So you're already treating them. There is no such thing as treatment free. There's organic and treatment free practices 
just like we do for our plants. I tried, you know, I use Dominicus earth. I try to only till in certain areas. I rotate crops. I guild them together so they can support each other. Right. I try all the stuff I can logically and scientifically. We have found out that that only does so much. You can only practice that so much. And when you practice it, it's usually only self-sustainable for you. You can't feed the plant, right? So when I feed my bees, I try to feed them something that's, that's productive for them. And I use products, like I said, why would I feed a whole bunch of bad sugar and stuff to my bees when I can make a product that's already made to help them? Plastic eliminates wax moth. So I created wax moth by making a frame that holds wax all the time that the bees can't control. So I just advanced it and I used plastic, right? People are like, well, that's not natural and organic. But I am helping my bees. I'm lowering my cost of feed instead of spending, well, I told you it takes like eight pounds of sugar to make so much cone, right? Well, I already made it for it. So I don't have to spend the money for it. So profitability-wise, isn't it better for me profit-wise to go to plastic than the natural-wise of pumping a lot of sugar into them? And then have to worry about, is the sugar good? That's like the other things. Like when bees make wax, they fly through all the smog, the smoke, all the pesticides, and all that stuff is produced in the beeswax. They've studied that when you take beeswax and you test it, it has all those stuff in the beeswax. And you have to think honeycomb is like a Chinese takeout box. It's a little box that we fill with food. And we put a cap on it for later, just like a Chinese takeout. We open that box, we eat the product out of it, we clean it with propolis and stuff, and eventually that box gets smaller and smaller and smaller because we treat put more propolis in it, which is a cleaning product. So we keep filling, and eventually those are too small to use, right? So we have to rotate the comb out for them because they can't, right? So, I mean, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot that goes when you when you talk about organic. I love when people say this is raw honey. I don't know any honey that's not raw. It's all it's all raw honey, right? It's about if it's pasteurized or not. If it's been heat treated, right? Because all honey's raw at all. I mean, unless unless you're doing what they did, the one guy that did in Uganda, and he was pumping straight sugar to the hives, and they were making honey straight from the sugar. They weren't even really foraging. He was overflowing the hives with sugar, so the bees had to constantly clean it. How they clean it is turn it into honey and store it, right? So that's the one thing that people don't like, but you can do some fun things. Feed your bees red sugar water. Then the bees turn red instead of clear, and the honey's red. Is it something you can sell naturally? at home? No, but it's cool to look at. I got red honey. Use Skittles. Make blue honey. Feed the bees blue sugar. They make blue comb, blue wax, blue... But is it, is it something that you could sell? Probably if you told people what it was, but it'd be something cool for people to try and look at and see how bees work. I think it has to come if what kind of beekeeper you are. Most people want to be a, bee, a good beekeeper. Beekeepers mostly start and end in four years because it's hard. You're going to get stung. It does cost money. And there's a difference between, like you said, when you're backyard to hobby beekeeper, you have to make a decision, right? What kind of beekeeper I am on that small level? Because on the bigger level, it's easier for me. I can buy more product at bulk. I can make more food in larger amounts, right? So, you know, there's some decisions you have to make because as a backyard beekeeper, if you've got two or three hives and you don't know how to requeen and do stuff like that, you'll be buying packaged bees Every other year, and a package B costs anywhere from one hundred and fifty to three hundred dollars, depending on what you want to spend in your apiary. So we ask this question to all of our podcast guests because this show is called The Good Dirt. Can you tell us about what does the good dirt mean to you? What you grow and what you do in something that's good to germinate from. You don't want one thing. You want to a variety of things that you can use to press forward to be enhancing, to make things flourish. I think when most people think about good dirt, though, they think they're thinking metaphorically. Good dirt is actually where you're from. 
I think we get our moral values, not from religion, not from law. We get them from family. Good dirt is where you come from. I always remember my grandmother saying, bad plants make bad seeds. That's a fact, right? Bad plants do make bad seeds. You need to talk about what you're going to build your foundation in and where that foundation came from. Your morals and ethics do not come from your religion. They do not come from what political standpoint you stand by. They actually come from where you're raised. Hopefully it's from good earth. Right? That you had somebody that told you that when you have more than you need, you don't take more. And that when you see a hand out, it's a hand out for a hand up and not just to continue giving a hand out that you're supposed to help them up. When you go through, if you Google Michael Jordan beekeeping and you look at some of the podcasts, I am an expert council member for a podcast called the Survival Podcast. And one of the things how I end when I tell my segment is I end with three things. And I think it has to do with your good earth is that the first thing is, is that you should always buy something and supply something from somebody that has a cottage business. They're starting something new and fresh and they're looking for your help and you're supposed to help your fellow man. Number two is, is that when you do that, buy it, buy it from a cottage industry, make sure you do it locally. Just because they're a cottage industry does not mean they're not your neighbor. So you should look for your neighbor and see what they have to offer. And the last thing is, is always help your fellow man. Always. Because one day you're going to need help too. And that's just the facts. One day you're going to reach your hand out in your darkest time of need, in the hour of most hope. And the only two things are going to happen. You're going to pull yourself up by your bootstrings because you have good earth, good moral values, good ethics, and you know you can do it. Or you have that good earth that comes by, grabs your hand, holds you up, and shows you where we come from. Where we come from makes you. Good dirt is where you come from. You have to create it. And you have to create it in your household. You have to create it in your community. You have to create it in your country. And you have to create it to everybody. It has to go back, like I said, about permaculture. If everybody does it, we do real good. We stop fighting, and the next thing you know, we colonize Venus. We spend more time looking for water than fighting for water. We find more time giving food away than throwing it away so people can't have it. And that's good earth. It's one thing to have something you can plant in and grow from, but I think it's where you want to make people come from. You want people to come from inspiring good earth. Thank you, Michael. I love that. Thank you. That's a great answer. <laughs> As we wrap up today, is there anything else that you want to leave with the audience about the work that you do? Or can you let people know where they can find you and follow you? You mentioned a couple things already, but if you could say those again one more time and anything else you want to leave with us? Sure. You can look up A B E Friendly Company. It's all one word. A B Friendly Company at gmail.com. And you can mail me questions. I answer them, and I have actually a lot of people in the field that if I don't know, I'll find you the answer. You can catch me on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, just Michael Jordan beekeeping. They usually something comes up with me in it. I've been doing this as an educational value since 2009. I developed a program through a high school, and for five years, I ran a beekeeping program through an alternative high school that encompassed everything in the high school. And I mean encompassed everything. We had the art department painting the beehives. We had the social media department writing the jingles and songs and the commercials to sell the products. We had the science department doing the testing on the bees, all the entomology. We had the English department writing up the documentation, the math department tracking hours and money and accounting, the culinary department making lip balm and selling honey. I incorporated everything that that school had to offer to show that if you truly wanted to educate kids, you show them how it works. So we showed beekeeping and how it worked in every field in your life. And they said, oh, I don't need to learn this in math. Well, let me show you what calculus does in beekeeping so we can project how many more apiaries we need, how many more frames we need, and what kind of money we need to invest as we work with the accounting department. It was a really good program. I use that program now, and I teach that program 
And I've taught that program through the University of Wyoming's extension through their B College. And I've done that now for 12 years. And I teach a small scale commercial beekeeper so you can see how to make profit and what it costs and how to be a steward of the land by doing it. I'm hoping for my book to come out here in 2024 with the videos. You read the book and watch the videos. And I teach a program called EDGE. It's called Educate, Demonstrate, Go For It, and Evaluate. EDGE. So I educate you by reading the book. We demonstrate through videos, and you can come to my site and learn. And then you go for it at home and see how those practical experiences work for you. And then you come back to the classroom, and we evaluate it, how it worked for you, what things you need to change to make it work for you, and how to do better beekeeping in those areas. And I teach a small commercial scale. And if you take the two-year program, you're pretty much ready to start selling products, populating, and doing more. The, the program that I've written is hopefully you make more bees than you need. That's basically the program is small commercial scale beekeeping where you make actually more bees, that you don't lose bees anymore, that you make. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate it. tuning in, calling in, and spreading the good dirt. We love hearing from you. You can reach our listener voicemail at 443-459-1950. That's 443-459-1950. You can find this number in our show notes and in our Instagram profile. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at We Are Lady Farmer. That's We Are Lady Farmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt. Goodbye.